Our fourth speaker, Arjun Chahal, is a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne. His research utilises the fruit fly to understand the fundamentals of tissue growth and how disruptions to these processes can lead to diseases like cancer. When he isn't getting, getting beaten up for his lunch money or looking for his inhaler, <laughs> is, is he also a bird watcher? You can usually find him watching the mighty Geelong Cats or grooming his beard while claiming that it just grows like that. He currently has an impact factor of, is that one or minus one? Negative one. Arjun. Oh, yeah, I, I don't know who wrote that. That was uh, pretty upsetting. Um, I'm just going to preface this with saying that some of the stuff in my talk might sound a little bit irreverent, um, but I believe laughter is the best medicine. I'm not a medical professional, though, so don't take that advice to heart. Um, when I was first asked to speak at Laboratory, I instantly knew the two people who I wanted to talk about. Thomas Hunt Morgan, who established the first Drosophila genetics lab in Columbia University in 1909, or Barbara McClintock, whose work on research uh, investigating the birthplace of the ribosome, or as it's known in the field, the ribosome, um, is so crucial to my own PhD. Unfortunately, one Thomas, not Thomas, one Jack Scanlon beat me to not one, but both um, topics that I wanted to talk about. And working on the idea that great minds think alike, he must be an absolute genius. <laughs> but every cloud does have its silver lining. Actually having to think about who I respected in science unearthed this gem of a story. Tonight I'll tell the story of Henrietta Lacks and her crucial, albeit unknowing, role in the development of an extremely important technique known as cell culture. What makes this story so interesting is that Henrietta was not a professor or a doctor or a researcher of any capacity. She dropped out of school after the sixth grade, worked on a tobacco plantation, and had her first child at the age of 14. Yet one could argue that her contribution to biology is as important as that of any Nobel Prize winner, if not more so. Just get the shakes out a little bit. Uh, Henrietta Lacks was born Loretta Pleasant in a shack in Roanoke, Virginia on August 1st, 1920. The eighth of ten children, her childhood was nothing out of the ordinary for a black girl living in America in the early half of the 20th century. Even back then, there were the universal trials and tribulations of youth that we can all relate to. Doing chores, daydreaming about boys, and avoiding the stones white children would throw at you as you walk past their nice school to the colored school down the road. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some of you might find this surprising, but being black in the United States, especially the southern part, meant you were pretty much guaranteed to have a bad time. Segregation was in full swing, meaning whites and coloreds had separate schools, separate sections on the train, at the movies, and even separate hospitals. While this was a particularly terrible chapter in human history, it is doubtful modern science or medicine would be where it is today were it not for the ethical abominations of the past. The past, jeez. So, whew, fast forward to January 29th, 1951, where 31-year-old Henrietta is bringing, being driven the 20 miles from her house to John Hopkins Hospital by her husband, David. They're not heading to John Hopkins because of its sterling medical reputation, but because it is the closest hospital that will treat black patients. Whites-only hospitals would turn away blacks at the door, no matter how urgent their need. Henrietta is there because over the course of a year and a pregnancy, she's been feeling a knot in her womb. Even after the doctors had kindly mansplained to her that it was simply a difficult pregnancy, Henrietta knew otherwise. Her worst fears were confirmed four and a half months after the birth of her fifth child, when she started spotting and it wasn't her time of the month. Her local doctor examined her, 
and found the bump Henrietta knew was there. But being an ill-educated medical doctor and not a genius doctor of philosophy, he assumed it was a symptom of syphilis. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, David Lax was handing out bouts of syphilis as regular, regularly as the mighty Geelong Cats hand out thrashings to opposition teams. But I digress. But I digress. When the test results came back negative for syphilis, the doctor referred Henrietta to the gynaecology clinic at Johns Hopkins. The gynaecologist on duty that shift, Howard Jones, examined the lump and described it as such. An eroded hard mass about the size of a nickel. If her cervix was a clock's face, the lump was at four o'clock. Shiny and purple like grape jelly, and so delicate it bled at the slightest touch. Jones removed a sample of the tumour for diagnosis and told Henrietta to go home. Jones had seen thousands of cervical tumours before. Um, but, and I quote him on this from his case notes, none like this. What a ladies' man. <laughs> in the 1950s, doctors thought there were two different kinds of cervical cancer. An invasive malignant carcinoma that penetrated into the cervix and a non-invasive benign kind that grows as a sheet on its surface, giving it its more common name of sugar icing carcinoma. Many doctors assumed the sugar icing cancer couldn't spread and didn't bother to treat it whereas the invasive kind was greeted with the same kind of burn the house down before it can lay eggs attitude most of us have towards spiders. <laughs> However, one man thought that the invasive and non-invasive tumours were just different life stages of the same cancer and was willing to ruffle some feathers to prove he was right. And what was the name of this man, you ask? Emilio Estevez, the mighty duck man himself. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't him. That was a lie, I'm sorry. It's just too good to say it. The man in question was Howard Jones's boss. Richard Wesley Talindi, or Uncle Dick, as he was more affectionately known. A giant in the field of gynaecology and a daredevil on the skating rink until an accident left him with a limp, just like Coach Gordon Bombay. <laughs> the 56-year-old Talindi pioneered the use of estrogen for treating menopause, initiated early research into endometriosis, and was the only man allowed to touch the Queen of Morocco's royal baby maker when she fell gravely ill. Men wanted to be him, women wanted to be examined by him. Talindi's idea was that cervical cancer started as a non-invasive sugar icing carcinoma and progressed into the more invasive type, which turned out to be true. However, at the time, this was extremely hard to prove. The ability to diagnose sugar icing carcinomas had only been achieved by George Papanicolaou. <laughs> I meant to check the pronunciation of that beforehand, but I don't have many Greek friends. Um, and his eponymous pap smear 10 years prior. The pap smear allowed early detection of precancerous cells, and a simple check had the potential to save 70% of the 15,000 women who died from cervical cancer each year. However, barely any women asked for one of these. I don't know why. And even if they did, many doctors struggled to interpret the results of these tests, resulting in perfectly healthy women receiving hysterectomies, while those at risk were sent home with aspirin, only to return months later with the metastasizing tumors. As such, there was no data to support to Lindy's hypothesis, but if he was right, the ramifications for women's health would be huge. Tillindy proposed his radical idea at a pathology conference and was literally heckled off stage. I like to imagine him storming off yelling, fine, I'll do my own research with blackjack and hookers. Uh, and anyone who was well acquainted with the dick measuring competition that is research and academia knows that this heckling was like showing red to a bull. Tillindy returned to Johns Hopkins determined to prove he was right. But the question was how. The idea... Um, I missed that part. The question was how. The only way was if he could take living samples of both types of carcinomas and grow them in the lab. That way he could observe their behavior, and if both the invasive and non-invasive forms behave the same way, he could have the biggest I told you so moment in the history of gynecology. Now all he had to do was solve one of the biggest biological questions of the 20th century. Oh. Hi, other side of the room. I've been very centric on this side. Uh, 
The idea of growing cells wasn't a new one. Researchers had been trying and failing to grow cells outside of the body since the early 1900s. However, no one thought it was possible until Alexis Carell and his infamous chicken heart cells made news around the world on January 17, 1912. Um, Carell was already famous for his groundbreaking work on suturing blood vessels together and used this technique to perform the first coronary bypass surgery, which won him the 1912 Nobel Prize for Medicine. He envisaged filling entire labs with organs he had grown and shipping them to those in need around the world. And he took the first steps towards this dream by taking a sliver of chicken heart and, quite miraculously, keeping its cells alive and beating in a dish of liquid nutrients for a remarkable 34 years. However, Carell was what I like to call the Kanye West of the cell culture world. <laughs> he seems like an absolute genius, but he opens his mouth and you just go, mm. <laughs> Turns out, Carell was a staunch eugenicist who wanted to grow organs to preserve the purity of the white race and thought Hitler was a, quote, all-around top bloke. He would make his lab assistant sing happy birthday to the chicken heart every January 17, and would somewhat ironically, or I guess more realistically, be outlived by his immortal chicken heart as he died while awaiting trial for collaborating with the Nazis. <laughs> also, it turns out that the media he used to feed his cells contained ground up chicken heart tissue, explaining how the cells continued to live for so many years. Um, but probably worst of all, I saw a picture of him and he actually looks like one of the Nazis from Raiders of the Lost Ark. It is that, that guy with the weird plastic glove. Was, yeah. So, back to, back to the story. Tillindy needed to grow these cells, but had no clue how to do it. Q. George and Margaret Guy, a husband and wife science duo who've been trying and failing to grow human cancer cells to study for the last three decades. In return for their help to grow both types of carcinomas, Tillindy would provide the guys with a never-ending source of cancer cells for their research. And where would he get these cells? From black patients. Johns Hopkins provided their medical services for free and felt entitled to use patients and their tissues for their research without their consent or knowledge. Remember that, that's an important part of the story. It'll be on the test. So, George and Margaret Guy were the original odd couple. George had the build of a retired linebacker, survived many a homebrew explosion, and would regularly eat 12 ears of corn in one sitting. I kid you not, 12 ears. That is ridiculous. He was a stereotypical scientific renaissance man, jerry-rigging machines and contraptions that have become staples of labs around the world today. Um, Margaret had been trained as a surgical nurse and would have been diagnosed with clinical OCD when it came to her levels of cleanliness and sterility in the lab. This was in an age where it wasn't uncommon to eat your lunch at the lab bench before having a cheeky post-lunch smoke. Things that wouldn't fly in this day and age, although some here still respect these time-honored traditions. Not naming names. Um, and we get back to our heroine, Henrietta Lacks. With her test results confirming she had cervical cancer, Henrietta was recalled to Johns Hopkins for treatment. Prior to receiving treatment, the doctor removed two small tissue samples, one cancerous and one healthy, and sent them to the Guy Laboratory. Once that was done, he proceeded with the treatment, which involved artfully arranging three tubes of radioactive vials in and around Henrietta's cervix with such Tetris-like skills that she required a catheter to urinate. The second round of radiation treatment, so harsh that it bet Henrietta's walnut skin the colour of tar, was deemed a success. Apart from the discomforting side effect that three weeks after starting treatment, Henrietta's urine came out feeling like broken glass. Her husband David was also complaining of a strange discharge and accused Henrietta of giving him some kind of sickness from the hospital. Doctors were confused at first, but Howard Jones was quick to diagnose Henrietta with acute gonorrhea superimposed on radioactive reaction. Because when you think your life can't get any worse, your husband tells you nothing is impossible and gives you gonorrhea. I won't go into any more depressing detail, but Henrietta's treatment was ultimately unsuccessful. In early June, several months after radiation treatment had begun, Henrietta attended Johns Hopkins complaining of discomfort in her abdomen. 
X-ray showed a tumor attached to her pelvic wall that was so big it was almost completely obstructing her urethra, and the doctors deemed it inoperable. Henrietta's condition swiftly declined, and she was admitted to hospice care. New tumors seemed to spring up daily on her lymph nodes, her bladder, her lungs, and no treatment was sufficient to treat her pain. At 12.15 a.m. on the 4th of October, 1951, less than 10 months after initial diagnosis, Henrietta Lacks died. Or did she? No, she, she did die. I, we were all very emotionally attached to her now. I, I, it's like Jon Snow all over again. I, 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 I panicked, I panicked. So, Henrietta Lacks, the person, had died. That's true. It's, it's, I, I don't like to make light of a person dying, but she had died. But the samples of her tumour, <clears throat> the ones that had been collected pre-treatment, had survived. Well, survived was an understatement. They had thrived and were growing like weeds. Mary Kubasek, the guy's lab assistant, had sectioned the tissue into, tissue into millimetre square pieces, placed them onto a pillow of chicken's blood clot in a tube labelled HeLa for Henrietta Lacks, and covered the Frankensteinian mix with several drops of culture media, a liquid used to feed cells, before placing these tubes into an incubator. She had done this so many times before for no result that by this point I imagine her having the same dead look on her face as anyone who works at Centrelink. Imagine her surprise when two days later there was enough cells in the tubes that they were visible to the human eye. She started dividing the tube's contents into two, then four, then eight tubes a day, with the cells doubling their number every 24 hours at a rate 20 times faster than that of normal tissue. The guys had finally done it. Cell culture had been achieved, but what do you do with cells that are multiplying faster than you can find storage for them? George Guy's solution? The cells were his Benjamin Franklin's and he was up into club. He literally made it rain cells. <laughs> Visitors to the lab received vials to take back to their home laboratories, and if the cells died on the way, Guy simply sent two more vials in their place. In death, Henrietta Lacks had probably the sickest gap year of all time, with Guy shipping her cells to Amsterdam, Texas, India, Europe, and everywhere in between. Healer cells traversed the Chilean mountains in mule saddlebags and soared gracefully through the air in the pockets of pilots, with their body heat acting as natural incubators for the cells. Guy's willingness to share both the cells and the sterile techniques and cell media recipes is not only refreshing given the state of collaboration in science today, but is the reason cell culture took off in such a big way. By providing the cells and optimal protocols for their use, Guy effectively standardized cell culture techniques, allowing labs from all over the world to compare results with each other. But why were these cells so prized, I hear you ask? These cells opened up vast new avenues of research for scientists that would never be justifiable on humans. Healer cells were chopped open, irradiated, exposed to drugs and chemicals, injected into immunocompromised mice to see what their effects would be. Healer cells were instrumental in developing Jonas Salk's poliovirus uh, vaccine, not his virus, his vaccine, that would not only improve the quality of life for whole generations, but save countless of monkeys from animal testing. Healer cells advanced our knowledge of cryogenics, of radiation poisoning, of the number of chromosomes a human cell contains. They have been fathoms below the surface of the ocean and shot up into space to see how human cells respond to these extreme conditions. The list goes on and on. When you search for healer cells on PubMed, a central repository for medical research articles, you get 88,809 hits. By comparison, James, Francis and James Watts and Francis Crick of DNA fame, everyone knows there's a bit of controversy, but whatever, DNA fame yield about 250 apiece. On the other end of the spectrum, when you search for my name, you get news articles about a man being asked to leave a local McDonald's for not wearing shoes. <laughs> but again, I digress, which is what I am so want to do. There's a, there's a point to this, I promise. Soon enough, people started asking where Guy had procured these miraculous cells. Despite the unethical and unconsenting manner in which the cells had been taken, both Guy and Talindi uh, respected patient confidentiality. As interest grew, a fictional Helen Lane was used in place of Henrietta. If the Lacks family had even heard of these cells, there was no way that they would make a connection between them and their lost mother. 
at least not until the scientific world absolutely rubbed their faces in it. As technology advanced to the point where we could map the specific locations of genes on chromosomes, geneticists needed more information on the HeLa cells that were helping uncover these mysteries. With the original donor long gone, they turned to her family to collect more genetic material. Imagine the shock of being told that your mother, who you thought had been dead for 23 years, was still alive, floating around in millions of dishes across the world, being subjected to poisons, chemicals, and all other kinds of torture. That is what happened to Deborah Lax, daughter of Henrietta, on a fateful day in 1974. To make matters worse, the companies that Guy had helped establish to mass-produce healer cells and the equipment and media needed for their growth were making millions of dollars, while the Lax family couldn't even afford health insurance. To be fair, neither Guy nor Talindia made a single dollar off healer cells, but I don't need to spell out how bad it looked for white men to be profiting off the buying and selling of a black woman's cells. The case of Henrietta Lacks raised all kinds of questions about ownership of genetic material and bioethics. The surviving Lacks family members grew tired of the constant questions and requests for samples from researchers and retreated from the public eye, wanting little to do with the media or the science fields until recently. There is a silver lining. Things are finally starting to look up for the Lacks family. They successfully lobbied for the rights to the genome of HeLa cells, which was publicly and freely available before. Researchers wanting to access it now have to seek permission, and scientific papers must acknowledge their use. Um, in my opinion, it's a weak bit of lip service, but at least it's a start. But these times, they are changing. And just this past Monday, it was announced that Oprah, yes, the Oprah, would be playing the role of Deborah Lacks in The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, a HBO movie based on the book of the same, of the same name. <laughs> For those of you interested in finding out more about Henrietta's story, I highly recommend it, although I'm pretty sure I've plagiarised all the best bits tonight. Um, I also really hope at the movie premiere someone, some marketing genius has strapped bars of healer cells under everyone's seat. And you get some cells! And you get some cells! Everyone gets some cells! <laughs> in this talk, I've mentioned two scientists who are worthy of being anyone's science hero. George Guy was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer at age 70. With surgery his last option, he left strict instructions with his lab to collect samples of his cancer in the hopes that if this cancer did kill him, the least it could do was help advance science in the process. Imagine his fury when he woke up to be told the cancer had metastasized so heavily that cutting into any of it would have killed him and no samples were taken. He spent the remaining three months on this earth volunteering his body for medical research and experimental drug trials, a true hero to the end. Richard Wesley Talindi, AKA coach Gordon Bombay, was such an expert in his field that a book he wrote in the 70s is still considered required reading for gyne gynecological residents today and is currently in its 10th edition. His observations and research into cervical cancer continues to save thousands of lives a year, but both pale in comparison to the ultimate contribution of Henrietta Lacks to the field of cell biology. I hope after tonight she is as much your hero as she is mine. Thanks.